And right away as we begin our, uh, or continue going through, rather, the book of Romans, I want to acknowledge that this is a very difficult section of the book. Uh, it was not intentional that Ford was not here. I should defend, I should defend him on that point. Uh, I should also defend him on the point that I volunteered for this part of Romans. So he did not just give it to me and say, hey, good luck. It is a difficult part of Romans, but there's a lot here to dig into. And one of the, the backdrops for this part of Romans that I think helps clarify what Paul is trying to do is what's happening in Rome at this time. The context. At this point in Rome, the Jewish community is returning after being kicked out of the city for five years under Emperor Claudius. So if you can imagine, the churches and the house churches in the area at that time are mostly filled with Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, Greeks. And then all of a sudden these Jewish Christians are returning to the city, entering back into those house churches. Two very different cultures turning into a melting pot. Lots of different ideas, clashing, worship services probably. You can imagine the tension. So one of Paul's goals throughout the entire book of Romans is establishing unity in the church at Rome. Creating a new Christian gospel-centered identity that can supersede and unite two very different cultures in that moment. With that as the backdrop, what Paul is doing here in the early part of, of Romans And it runs beyond our passage today into the next couple of chapters. But what he's doing is he's telling the universal story. He's telling the story of all of us. He's telling the story of the human heart. Because that is one of the ways to unite people. The challenge for us and for Paul is that that universal story, that story of the human heart, isn't very flattering. There is idolatry. There is sin. There is brokenness. And so, following Paul, we have to talk about the wrath of God. We have to come to terms with that phrase as it shows up in the book of Romans. So he says this, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And I just wanted to start by asking, what comes to mind for you when you think about the wrath of God? When that phrase shows up, anger, wrath, what shows up in your mind? As I alluded to earlier, that's important to how we interpret what God is doing And I think one of the challenges is that we have these perceptions about wrath that are impacted by our sinful perspective. So for me, when I think of just the word wrath, what comes to mind is road rage, maybe an abusive parent or boss, or more popularly, the action hero taking revenge on the bad guys in the movie. Is that what we mean when we talk about the wrath of God? Are we talking about an out-of-control, temper-tantrum-like rage? 
I would say no. To say that God has wrath is not to say that his wrath is like our wrath. And we really need to sit with that first. Because we can't impose our sinful ideas onto God. We can't make God into our own image. For more backup on this, I actually turn to James, 1, uh, James chapter 1, verse 20. Where it says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Said differently, there is a categorical difference between God's wrath and ours. Our wrath carries sinful connotations with it. Selfishness, jealousy, anger. God's wrath doesn't carry those things. And so it is different. And so today, as we begin Paul's universal story, the story of each and every one of us, one of the things I want to clue us into is the insights we can receive from this passage about the wrath of God. What it is, how it is expressed, and how it's different than the anger we experience in today's world. So first, Paul starts his story, and I'm dividing it into three parts. He starts it with who God is, and he moves on to our rebellion, and then he uh, ends with God's response. So starting with who God is, this is... Uh, starting in Romans um, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, if you want to follow along. For what can be known about God is plain to them, he says, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is a picture, there's a picture of God within these verses that actually runs contrary to some of the ways we view God in America today as well. The picture that Paul paints is a generous, engaged, and communicating God. It's easy in our culture to fall into what we might call American deism, which is the belief that God created the world and then left it. He abandoned it to its own devices, and everything just kind of runs without God's input. This is not the picture that Scripture gives us of who God is. Instead, the God of Scriptures is active, engaged, and continuously holding up the world, restraining evil, making himself known to humans. It says it right here. His divine attributes are clearly perceived. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. This is more than just a belief that God or some, some sort of higher power created the world. That's often how this verse is used. But this is more than that. This is saying that his character, his person, is communicated through creation. And so God is intimately involved, intimately engaged. What this means is he is near to you every day. He is communicating himself to you every day through creation, through his scripture, through his church. He's involved. A distant God from up on high communicating wrath to his creation is one thing. A God intimately involved and engaged and restraining evil actively communicating wrath is another 
Those are two very different pictures. And I think it's easy for us to fall into the first one when the reality of Scripture says that God is engaged with us, moving towards us, active. So this leads into what we might call the sacramental nature of creation. And that's just a big way of saying that creation is communicating who God is, that God is speaking through the material world. And this is seen in Psalm 145, which was read this morning. Uh, It starts with a description of who God is. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. So the, the works of God are giving thanks to God. Creation sings to its creator. This Uh, verse and others like in the Old Testament led one uh, Jewish scholar to say the ultimate meaning of history lies in in the continuity of God's concern. The ultimate meaning of history lies in the continuity of God's concern. So right away as an established foundational point we have to recognize that God cares for his creation and he wants what's best and what's good for it. As human beings, we are all invited into the praise of Psalm 145. It says, all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Except, it's not what we've done. And that's the problem. As verse 20 says, those who have known God through creation have willfully suppressed that knowledge. And then he goes even further. Romans 1, uh, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this is the rebellion. One of the reasons why I see this as the universal story is that Paul is making these little nods and these little statements that draw us back to the story of Adam and Eve. They did not honor him or give him thanks. They exchanged the glory of mortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. That's the created order right there that you see in Genesis chapter 1. So we turn from God to his creation. We exchange the glory of God, what we're meant for, for the lesser glory of creation. And so if this is Paul retelling the story of Adam and Eve, it's profoundly important that we sit with that little phrase there, they did not honor him or give him thanks. Because that becomes the root of all of our rebellion and all of our sin. That is what untethers us from that continuous care that God has over creation. Not giving thanks, not honoring him. That's all it is. That's what Adam and Eve ultimately did. And this has a ripple effect. Sin is not just about your goodness or your badness. It has an impact on your life, on creation. 
It stretches out beyond you. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the recovery work that I do uh, as a counselor, uh, one of the statements that that comes out of the 12-step programs is that there are no secrets. And what they're saying there is even if people don't know, it has an effect. It has a ripple. It impacts your community. It impacts the people around you. And it impacts you. It impacts your soul. That's not what God would have for you. And so this action of not giving honor and thanks to the God who created us, who continuously is caring for us and upholding the world, untethers us from his love and light. Our humanity is meant to honor and give thanks to God. And we're beings who are meant for that. So we're meant to worship God. So what this means is that it's not that we stop worshiping altogether. It means that we change what we're worshiping. And this is the, this, the uh, flow that Paul is picking up here, moving into idolatry. There's a vacuum of worship in our hearts, and it's replaced with created things, images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And it's super easy for us in the modern world to say we don't have idols because we don't have these little statues that we make sacrifices to in our house. But what idol is, is an attempt at ultimate control. Versus what real worship is, which is a means of dependence and a release of that control. When we try to have ultimate control of the world, how we're doing that is the idolatry. That's not what we're meant for. We're meant for that relationship with God, that codependency with one another, and that dependency on God for our existence. So here's the picture so far. God's created a world of life and light. And he is continuously active within that world, never giving up, never leaving. Even after the fall, he is communicating himself to us with compassion and with mercy, as Psalm Psalm 145 says. We've actively chosen to step away from that continuous care. To not honor him or give him thanks, but instead to worship other things, which give us the illusion of control. And doing so is destructive. Not only to ourselves, but to creation itself. How is God supposed to respond to this? What's he supposed to do with the fruit of us not giving honor and thanks to him? The fruit being things like injustice, oppression, defrauding, killing, hatred, cheating, lying. All those things that Paul mentions here at the end and are so destructive on our lives and our communities. What should he do with those things when he finds them in our own hearts? God's response to that destruction is what we call the wrath of God. Because it is his firm opposition to all that would destroy his good creation. N.T. Wright says it this way. When God looks at sin, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if someone used his lovely creation as a tennis racket. In short, God's response to our destructive sin is to stand opposed to it. So this is the wrath of God. It is the surgically precise removal and destruction of the cancer that is killing us. And we notice this actually in that first verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath is directed towards the sin. 
His opposition is directed towards the sin. It isn't directed towards his image bearers. It's directed towards the sin in his image bearers. And how that sin destroys and affects them. And so we enter into this uh, next section of, of Romans, verses 23 through 32. And you see structurally that there are three, there's a threefold repetition. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. This is how the Old Testament talks about God's wrath over and over and over again, especially in the prophets. You see God giving over Israel to an invading army. That's the language that's often used. And so it's very surprising that God's opposition to our sin sometimes looks like him giving us over to it. Because that's the ultimate punishment, is that removal of that protection. So that threefold repetition is meant to acknowledge the holistic nature of the depravity. Um, you see there the giving over the mind, giving over the heart, and giving over the passions, which would um, be a statement connecting it to the body. So there's this idea that, that the entire person is given over to what they are looking for. And so I, I want us to be careful with this because there's obviously a lot in here um, and it's easy to read this and, and to, to think of it as, as those people out there. Uh, and that's exactly the opposite of Paul's point, which he'll get into in the next chapter. Um, but this is not necessarily an individual list for Paul. Paul is looking at the culture at large in, in his time, much of which was far worse than ours, actually, in many ways when it comes to some of these things. Um, so he's looking at that culture at large, and what he's saying is that the the Things that he was seeing in that culture are the result of that untethering from God, that God giving people over, giving the culture over. Um, He's making a statement about that Gentile culture at large around him. So what Paul is saying here is that God's wrath is expressed as a removal of protective boundaries, an allowance for the destructive power of sin. In short... He's giving them what they want. If we want life without God, we'll find it. And it will be our ruin. If you want life with God, he's constantly communicating himself to us. So in summary, God is a God of compassion and continuous care for his creation. Our hearts often live in rebellion to that care and seek after what would destroy us. One of the primary ways the wrath of God is expressed is when God gives us over to those desires and then we can truly see the folly of that decision. We can truly see that God's ways are better than what we are experiencing in that moment. Uh, I'll be honest, I really struggled with how to finish this sermon because, as you notice, the verses just kind of stop. And it's like, where's the gospel message? Where's the hope? I promise you that is coming. It's in like two chapters. <laughs> I don't want to take away whoever preaches that, that sermon, uh, take away their content there. Um, but let me just say this. As we're entering in deeper and deeper into Romans, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different layers 
one of the things I would want you to be looking for is the action of God. God is the true actor in the book of Romans. And the gospel is that great message of him coming to save us from ourselves. It's that great narrative that flows through all of scripture of God being faithful over and over and over again to save us, to heal us, and to renew us. That is what he is offered in Christ. That is what each and every one of us is offered in Christ. And ultimately, Christ himself, God himself, gives himself over to receive our sin and bear it on the cross. So he is the one who solves the problem. He is the one who deals with the the need for justice. He is the one who, through Christ, can return us back to worshiping him and glorifying him and giving him honor and thanks as we are called to do. Let me just close uh, with prayer.